On today's episode of Sports Medicine Weekly, we talk with Dr. Nick Verma from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, the head team physician with the Chicago White Sox, about managing rotator cuff tears and a new technology for irreparable tears to the rotator cuff. But first, to note from a couple of our sponsors here on Sports Medicine Weekly, JRF Ortho partners with orthopedic surgeons to improve the quality of life of patients by enabling them to have an active life through the generous gift of cartilage and ligament transplantation. Please go to jrfortho.org to learn more or sign up to be a tissue donor at donatelife.net. That's jrfortho.org or donatelife.net. This episode also brought to you in part by Karen Malkin's new protein brownie bar and superfood bars, best tasting bars on the market, certified gluten-free paleo, no added sugar, Karen's protein brownie bars and superfood bars available on Amazon and at karenmalkin.com. Got a great topic for you on this edition of Sports Medicine Weekly, Rotator cuff tears how common how do they happen uh we've got a great um guest on dr nick verma who uh recently was involved with a new study with a balloon but dr brian cole we'll start with you and uh, that's my first question of uh, rotator cuffs uh it seems like a very common injury you guys are very um invested there at midwest orthopedics at rush and uh what percentage of patients uh, deal with rotator cuff injuries well, so, so uh, great topic and uh, very glad to have my partner, Nick Verma, on this episode on rotator cuff tears. And I think the first thing, Steve, to sort of set the landscape is that rotator cuff tears, if we look at our shoulder practices, those of us who uh, uh, practice and specialize in shoulder at Midwest Orthopedics or Rush, I would say it's still the most common reason patients come to us with shoulder pain. And rotator cuff tears are one of those things that sort of happen due to aging. It's what we call attritional or degenerative. And people often think that they happen because uh, there's a traumatic event and they have pain and that's when it must have torn. And the reality is every decade of life, we accumulate rotator cuff tears at a, at a, at a rate of about 10 to 15%. And Steve, I think a lot of people don't even understand what the rotator cuff is. There are four muscle tendons around the shoulder that help to motor or move the shoulder. And that's sort of the rotator cuff. But there's really one that's most commonly involved. And that tendon is called the supraspinatus tendon. And it's attached to a muscle. And just for the, for, our, for our listeners today, you know, a muscle has uh, muscles that contract and move. And then they give rise to the tendon. And then that tendon inserts on the bone. And what happens as we age, Steve, is that tendon bone interface tends to fail over time just because the biology just gets kind of worse and worse. And in fact, it's estimated that probably over 6 million people over the age of 65 in the United States are walking around with rotator cuff tears. So you might ask, well, how, how can that be? I, that, you would think that'd be a full-time job just managing all these people with rotator cuff tears. And the reality is that people tend to adapt to their existing rotator cuff tear over time. In other words, the other muscles, because of the, there's four muscles as, that are actually functional, there's other muscles that can sort of substitute and adapt. And as long as everything sort of stays in check and we have that balance around the shoulder, people can coexist with the rotator cuff tear and have no idea that they have it. But when they do have symptoms related to it, they typically present with night pain, uh, disability, inability to move the arm freely, weakness, um, and functional loss. And that's what comes to uh, uh, Dr. Verma's and my office is a patient says, look, I was doing great. 
and then they present and they have weakness and they have pain and they can't motor or move the arm sufficiently and they typically complain of night pain. Okay, very interesting, and uh, it's very, very common. Let's bring on our uh, guest for this podcast, Dr. Nick Verma. He is an orthopedic surgeon for Midwest Orthopedics at Rush and also the head team physician with the Chicago White Sox. He was a principal investigator into this uh, new study using a balloon. First person to put it in uh, after receiving FDA approval, Dr. Nick Verma. Thanks for joining us here on our Sports Medicine Weekly podcast. And... uh, You want to echo kind of what Dr. Cole touched on, and uh, how often do you see the uh, rotator cuff patients? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Brian and Steve. It's great to be back. And I would just echo Brian's comments regarding what is a rotator cuff injury and how does it present. And it clearly is the most common cause of shoulder pain for patients over the age of 50 that come to our offices. The one comment I would add uh, to Brian's is the fact that one of the difficulties that we have in treating rotator cuff problems is we don't always understand where the pain is coming from. So as Brian said, as we get older, many patients can have these tears and not even know it, meaning they can exist in an asymptomatic state. And once you get over the age of 70, that's probably more than 50% of the population will have a tear if you get an MRI scan, yet be functioning completely normally. And so that's a challenge for us in terms of understanding why somebody goes from an asymptomatic world to a symptomatic world, even though they had a rotator cuff before. In addition, the second challenge uh, is how do we treat these? And there are some conservative options, but when we get to the surgical realm, the biggest problem that we have in managing rotator cuff disease is number one, we're dealing with poor quality tendon and it's a poor biologic environment. The blood supply to the tendon is generally deteriorated over time. And so we have a difficult time achieving structural healing between the rotator cuff and the bone. And secondly, from a patient perspective, and Steve, I know you didn't have rotator cuff surgery, but you had shoulder surgery, you can attribute or attest to this, is that the recovery is extremely long and frustrating for many patients. It probably takes six to eight months to get a good result, really a year before they're kind of back to their baseline status or as good as they're gonna get after surgery. So if we can improve the biology, um, that would be helpful in managing rotator cuff disease when we repair them. But if we have a simple procedure that may eliminate pain and allow them to return to an asymptomatic state, even if we don't have to repair the rotator cuff, but allows for an expedited recovery, that can be really beneficial for some of our older patients who are simply looking to get back to their regular day-to-day activities. And Steve, you know, one of the things to understand is that because these happen as we age, it means the tissue quality is generally quite bad. And what's fascinating is that a patient will come in and say, I was doing great. And then I just moved my arm in a certain way. I lifted something up, put something on a shelf and I had shoulder pain. And then we get an MRI and we can tell that that tear has been there 10 years or more. You can essentially date or time a tear just by the MRI. It shows, you know, there's certain findings and the challenge is that many of these patients present with disease that's been there a long time. We call it chronic or longstanding, but they had no symptoms, so they never showed up in our office. And the good news is that most people can adapt to that, but there is a subset who can't. So the problem that Dr. Verm and I face is that these patients present with really poor quality tissue, and in some instances, it's not repairable. I mean, the standard is when someone comes in and we try non-surgical care, sometimes it's an injection and physical therapy, and many of those patients will get better. But the standard is we try to fix it. But some of these are just very large tears that have no ability to fix them. And that's that's the area that uh, Dr. Verm and I have been working on is to try to find alternative strategies when you, can, you can't take this bad biologic tissue that doesn't want to heal uh, and you can't get it to heal. And if you can get it down to the bone and so forth to try to stimulate healing, at one year, the retear rates, Steve, by MRI, sometimes are 90% in some wow. series. 
yeah, so we've been looking at all these different techniques uh, to actually find alternatives to the standard, uh, hey, let's just try to put it back down with sutures and anchors and so forth, when the failure rates have actually been quite high. So that's where most of our work has been is finding these alternative strategies. So Nick, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the study that uh, you were involved with and uh, we were involved as a site at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush and uh, what, the, what the findings were, how the thing works, how we put it in and just give us a brief overview. Sure. So this study was actually founded in 2014. The study was completed uh, about uh, nine to 12 months ago, uh, and the device was then submitted for FDA approval that happened about 30 days ago. This has been a device that's uh, been in use in Europe for over 10 years and has over 10,000 implantations. But the device was recently brought to the United States, which prompted the clinical trial to allow for approval for use in the general population by the uh, FDA here in the United States. Uh, as Brian alluded to, and as we already discussed, you know, part of the problem for us is that we know that these patients did well for a long period of time and had some decompensating event and then developed symptoms. And our goal, whether we get the tendon to heal, whether we repair it, regardless of what we do, is to kick them back into that asymptomatic world. Now, in many cases, we do that by trying things like physical therapy, injections, anti-inflammatories, rest and time. And for a vast majority of patients, that works but there's a small minority of patients that continue to have symptoms despite the conservative options and then go on to a surgical procedure. The group of patients that we're dealing with here are what are called massive irreparable tears. And Brian started to talk about this just a minute ago. These are generally older patients. Uh, the study really preferenced patients over the age of 65 who have chronic longstanding disease, but more recent onset of symptoms. And when we look at the MRI scan, we can tell from the MRI that the tear is very large, the tissue quality is very poor, the muscle associated with the tendon has started to atrophy. And those signs tell us as a surgeon that it's very unlikely that we're going to be able to repair this tendon and get it to heal. And so there are a number of different alternatives that have been suggested over time to try to deal with these patients to give them symptomatic improvement when conservative care has failed. And this is a very simple novel device to try to achieve that, but allow for a very rapid recovery afterwards. So one of the problems that we think happens when a large rotator cuff occurs and patients become symptomatic is they have decompensation of the additional muscles around the shoulder that help to compensate when the rotator cuff is not working. And the biggest one that does that is the deltoid muscle, which is the large muscle on the side of your arm that allows you to lift. And so if we can eliminate pain and allow patients to rehabilitate the deltoid, we can often take them back into their asymptomatic world where they existed for a long period of time, even though we haven't really repaired the rotator cuff. So the way that this device works is it's a simple arthroscopic procedure, which means that we either put them under a, a regional anesthetic, we just numb their an arm up, we give them a little sleeping medication like you would with a colonoscopy, we make a few small incisions surrounding the shoulder and put a camera inside, we clean up any of the uh, inflammation or uh, if they have other issues like the biceps, Steve, I know you went through that. We take how care you, of it, uh, but we don't Dr. Nick, uh, how, how do you clean up inflammation? So bursitis is really, bursa is the area between the rotator cuff and the bone, and that becomes often thickened and inflamed as a result of uh, this type of process. And so we simply just debride it. We remove it from the shoulder joint. It's called a bursectomy. Okay. We smooth off our bone spurs and, and may deal with any other minor conditions that exist. But then at the end of the procedure, we actually place a balloon in the space between the top of the ball of your joint and the bottom of your shoulder blade. That's the space where the rotator cuff normally exists, but has now been vacated because the rotator cuff is torn. The balloon is made of a bioabsorbable material. Um, so it goes in in a rolled up fashion, you put it into the joint and then you inflate it with saline uh, and you can size it based on the size of the patient. So we generally insert somewhere between 30 to 60 
cc's or milliliters of saline in order to inflate this balloon. And what that does is it allows the, the uh, ball side of the shoulder, the humerus, to realign with the socket side of the shoulder or the glenoid, which allows the deltoid to work normally again. So it gives them a pain-free interval and allows them to participate in rehabilitation. And once the balloon goes away, it dissolves over a period of about three to 12 months. They're now rehabilitated their shoulder and they're back to their asymptomatic state. The nice thing about the technique is it's very quick. It can take less than 30 minutes. Patients have to be in a sling only for about a week or two. Uh, they have a minimal requirement for physical therapy only over, over about six to 12 weeks. Uh, and the recovery in our experience, we've done about 20 of them here at Rush between myself, Dr. Cole, and a couple of other surgeons during the clinical trial. Our universal results were that they get very rapid pain relief. So it's a very good, what we would call a salvage option, meaning you don't have a lot of good options available, but you're trying to improve somebody's day-to-day function, improve their pain, let them sleep at night, and get them back to a world where they were asymptomatic before. So it's really novel in that way. Dr. Verma, um, give us some perspective on the size. I'm just interested the size of this balloon. Less than a golf ball, a size of a penny? I would say between a ping pong ball and a golf ball, really? depending on the size of the patient. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Filled with saline, and then it dissolves over time. So what happens is, Correct. so what happens is, is, is he, as Nick alluded to, is it, 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 what we think, the way we think it works is that it, it gets people rehab enabled. What's fascinating about these longstanding massive or very large tears is that, as I said, there could be 6 million people walking around over the age of 65 with these tears, right? So you're wondering how are all these people doing so well? And that's because their shoulders are well compensated. In other words, the muscles that are intact, including the deltoid muscle, you know, the one over the sleeve or the top of the arm are functioning normally. And when those things start to decompensate, we do often recommend rehabilitation. And when that fails, then we start thinking about surgery when the symptoms rise to the level they are just, you know, dissatisfying for the patient. So the p- concept of the balloon is to enable the patient to then become rehab sensitive or rehab responsive. And, you know, people say, well, the balloon goes away in three months. You know, how could it do anything? It's the fact that it just... We believe that it takes the patient who couldn't properly rehab and makes them able to properly rehab the same thing you would do if you tried non-surgical treatment. Okay. I want to ask you the difference between that and a cortisone shot because that's what I'm thinking used to be able to used to shoot cortisone in there and be able to rehab. But first, um, I want to thank a couple of our sponsor, Vericell, develops, manufactures, and markets autologous cell-based therapies for patients with serious diseases and conditions. For more information about their products, visit vcell, V-C-E-L, dot com. Warm weather is here. Time to get outside, enjoy your favorite activities, spend precious time with family and friends. Aches, pains, injuries should not be part of the memories you're making. The therapists at Rush Physical Therapy are there for you. More than 60 locations throughout greater Chicagoland. Rush's clinical experts will get you back to life. Go to RushPT.com today to schedule an appointment. Not sure if physical therapy is right for you. You can request a complimentary consultation and discover the power of Rush Physical Therapy today. Okay, Dr. Colt, Dr. Verma, talking about this in-space balloon for massive, irreparable rotator cuff tears. Um, Before I heard about this and what you uh, gentlemen are saying, that uh, and it makes sense. It'll uh, you put this in and allow you to um, help rehabilitate, um, do some physical therapy to enable that shoulder to get better, that rotator cuff. But it used to do that with with cortisol. What's the difference now? I mean, Steve, seventy in in, in our experience, and this has been well studied. About seventy five percent of people with large massive tears should get better without surgical treatment, including no 
no balloon, right? This balloon is a minor, minimally invasive procedure, so it's great, but you, it doesn't mean we would ever uh, sidestep other avenues to get people better. So what's fascinating is there's some very good work in this area that about two-thirds of patients or more who come to us with a long-standing rotator cuff tear will respond to non-surgical treatment, which includes potentially a cortisone injection and physical therapy. And in fact, there was a really fascinating study that about 75% of these patients can remain surgery-free at five years wow. uh, if, if they engage in this non-surgical program. Because what I told you is that, you know, six, six and a half million people over the age of 65 running around with rotator cuff tears, right? So what is the difference between those who have symptoms and those who do, who do not? And there's a lot of room to take that large category of patients who are symptomatic, meaning night pain, disability, loss of function, and doing things and doing things like um, uh, re rehabilitation and, and, and a cortisone injection, and you can get them reset. The population that Dr. Verman and I are talking about are the ones who just can't reset on their own with, without surgery. And this provides a bridge for that procedure. So does, I hopefully that makes sense. And that's one of the things that it'd be, the fact that we have a minimally invasive way to do this, that's very efficient um, and where the patients don't have to stay in a sling for four to six weeks to protect the repair. I mean, that's a pretty monumental, uh, uh, a revolutionary change in our care for patients with rotator cuff problems. Yeah, when I first read about this. Steve, I want to make. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I think it's important to make one other comment, sure. and I echo Brian's comments about the fact that, first of all, in this study, everybody did go through a conservative course that largely included cortisone the way that you're saying. So this is really designed for those patients that failed. But I also want to make sure that the audience understands that this does not mean that we're saying you should not get your rotator cuff repair. There is a large segment of the population that will benefit and do extremely well with a rotator cuff repair. So if you're a 45-year-old, you fall off a ladder, you've got an acute tear of the rotator cuff, the standard of care is still to repair it because we know that if we get the tendon back into the normal position, it's probably gonna give you a more durable result over time. And most importantly, it's gonna be the best operation to help restore your function, i.e. strength recovery, which is important for younger individuals. This device is really designed for a subgroup of individuals, which is higher, uh, 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 excuse me, larger size tears in older individuals that have lower demand requirements. They're looking for things like activities of daily living. They're looking for nighttime uh, pain improvement. They're not necessarily looking to get back to, say, being an electrician or a plumber with a high overhead demand. This, this device will not necessarily uh, uh, restore strength. It'll get you back to your baseline, but your baseline probably wasn't normal to begin with. It was just symptom reduced or symptom free in terms of pain. So I think it's important that the vast majority of people that are out there that do have a rotator cuff tear, particularly in the younger age group, still the standard of care would be a rotator cuff repair. Steve, and I just want to uh, you know add one more uh, development that Dr. Verma and I have been working on for the last two years that uh, was also grounded in research. And what I told you earlier in our audience earlier is that unfortunately we see a number of these repairs fail when we obtain an MRI, for example, at one year. Now, the good news is many of those patients remain symptom-free because they were able to do physical therapy, right? So, but when we do repair these massive tears, rather than, say, putting a balloon in, we do find this high retear rate. Dr. Verma and I have been working on for the better part of two years an alternative uh, that can help enhance the repair. And I'd, I'd also give uh, Dr. Verma a chance to sort of describe what we've been doing 
this procedure called rotator cuff augmentation. I just think it'd be nice for our listeners to understand that there's so many different ways to manage rotator cuff pathology, but this new concept of augmentation and providing instrumentation that enables surgeons to do this it used to be a really hard operation to do and also very expensive, but we've developed a new way uh, to actually do this. So Dr. Berman, maybe just give us a brief sort of the elevator pitch on uh, what we're now doing to enhance rotator cuff repairs. So as you alluded to, Brian, at the onset of this discussion is the major issue that we face with rotator cuff disease, particularly as it becomes more chronic, is the biology. It's a poor biologic environment for healing. So we've done our best to try to achieve mechanical constructs that uh, are better. They're stronger. They help to hold suture uh, within tendon better. But we've reached a limit in what we can achieve on a mechanical basis. So now we've started looking at biologic options. I'm sure on this uh, show before, you've talked about bone marrow aspirate and stem cells, and that's one option that we've explored that has showed significant promise in managing rotator cuff disease. But in some cases, what we need to do is we actually need to add collagen. Collagen is what tendons are made of. It's really the building block of tendon structure. And so kind of like if you think about when you were younger and you used to tear your jeans, and if your mom or dad or the tailor would stitch them up, they would often add a patch on top of it to help augment the repair to make sure that it remained stable. So what Brian's discussing is a way for us to augment the repair of a rotator cuff by adding a collagen patch. The patch is made of human collagen. It comes from our skin or dermal tissue. It's generally about one to 1.5 millimeters thick. And what we do is we repair the tendon, but then we deliver the patch and stitch it on top of the tendon or place it on top of the tendon. The challenge historically has been technically it's really hard to do. It's hard to get that patch in there. It's hard to pass sutures. It's hard to get that accomplished in a reasonable period of time and feel confident that you did it well. And so new technology is now around that allows us to deliver these patches very quickly, efficiently, and completely in order to help augment the rotator cuff and uh, potentially provide better healing. There have been a number of studies that have looked at these augment devices in the past, and the vast majority of them have showed better clinical outcomes as well as better healing rates. Uh, but we now have a way to do this on a more routine basis that's easier for the surgeon and more widely adoptable. All right, final question I have. Um, something jumped out at me, um, Dr. Verma, when you said this started in 2014 in Europe and then it has to be FDA approved here in the United States. Uh, do they have? Do we have more stringent uh, requirements? Um, why okay in Europe and it takes 10 years later here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a common problem that we run into, and Brian can speak to this having been involved in many uh, FDA-level clinical trials. But in general, the FDA will look at data that comes from outside the U.S., but in order for a device to be approved within the U.S. using a, a what we call a, a new device pathway, meaning it's not based on a previous device, it's a completely new technology, they have to go through what's called an investi investigational device exemption. And that's the way the device was used in the United States as part of the study. So the study was designed in combination with the FDA in order to prove that the benefits that were being seen in Europe were applicable to our population and reproducible. Uh, and that allowed for us to, uh, to get the device approved in the United States. Now, in addition, the level or the quality of the evidence that was done during this study was much better than anything that had ever been published in, in Europe. Most of what had been published in Europe are what we call retrospective trials, where somebody says, hey, I did 100 of these. This is how my patients did. What we did in the U.S. is what's called a randomized clinical trial, which means that we selected patients that would be appropriate for the procedure. Half of the patients got the, the new procedure. Half of the patients got a traditional procedure where we repaired part of the rotator cuff, and then we compared the results over time. So the quality of the evidence was much better, 
and it is unfortunately an FDA requirement in order to bring new investigational devices or new technology to the U.S. Steve, you've heard a lot about the role of the FDA now when we're dealing with vaccines and approval and emergency approval and so forth. The device pathway traditionally used to be a relatively easy way to get things through the FDA rather than sort of biologics and, and drugs and so forth. What's uh, fascinating is that even in Europe now, it's becoming increasingly difficult. The, their ability to use this in Europe uh, before, I think that's even changed. The regulatory burden around the world has actually increased exponentially. So it's not so easy. And as, as Nick alluded to, this is this the quality of the study was uh, probably, I would say this is the highest quality study that someone could perform on a new device. And it passed every test, if you will, that the FDA required. And we know that it's very safe and it's very effective. And it's really the first device that I can think of that's actually gotten through the FDA that's new um, that will really, I think, evolutionize or revolutionize treatment for a really difficult problem. So we were very fortunate uh, at Midwest Orthopedics to be one of the many clinical trial sites around the country to, to participate in this. Great stuff, guys. You guys are always on top of uh, new research studies, finding new technologies, and uh, this was uh, quite enticing today talking about uh, the Insuvase Balloon for Massive Irreparable Rotator Cuff Tears. Dr. Nick Verma, Dr. Brian Cole. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Great stuff. Appreciate it. Guys, thanks for having me, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Thank you so much. Midwest Orthopedics at Rush is something you can't find anywhere else. The number one ranked orthopedic and spine care in Illinois. When it comes to diagnosing and addressing your pain, their team of orthopedic providers is focused on giving you the most effective treatments to help you feel and function better. And with access to their orthopedic and spine experts conveniently located in six Chicagoland area locations, easier than ever to get you back to leading a full active life. Visit RushOrtho.com to learn more and find a specialist. We hope you enjoyed today's Sports Medicine Weekly episode. Be sure to add the Sports Medicine Weekly podcast to your playlist on Apple and Spotify. Listen in anytime, anyplace. Subscribe to the Sports Medicine Weekly podcast. New Sports Medicine Weekly podcasts are shared weekly on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Many thanks to our producer, Alex Soroka, for Dr. Brian Cole and our guest, Dr. Nick Verma. I'm Steve Cashel. Thanks for listening. Talk with you next time.